Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 43. Thank you for being here and a special thank you to my Patreon patrons who get the shows early and with extra content. And they are also my favorite people in the whole wide world. If you want to support me and the show, do that at patreon.com artisticfinance. The additional audio from today's interview is over on Patreon. Today's guest is Mark Santos, a fine art photographer who specializes in dance movement. Long flowing motion blur is a hallmark of his style, his work has been shown in solo and group exhibitions in the United States and abroad, and is held in several private collections. Mark is also a theater electrician based in New York City. Links to his website and everything we talk about is in the show notes and on our website, artisticfinance.com. Artisticfinance.com is also where we have our merchandising. Yes, merchandising, where the real money from the podcast is made. Artistic Finance, the t-shirt. Artistic Finance, The Coloring Book. Artistic Finance, The Lunchbox. Artistic Finance, The Breakfast Cereal. Artistic Finance, The Flamethrower. The kids love this one. And last but not least, Artistic Finance, The Doll. Me. Alright, some of those items may or may not be available, but you'll have to go to artisticfinance.com to find out which ones. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Mark Santos, to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are recording this on February 8th, 2021. So we are amidst the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter slow burn across the United States and the world. Could you give us the abbreviated version of your life and where you are in your career and up to right now? Yeah, so I am both a, a photographer and a theater technician. I've been working in both of those fields for 20 years now. What made you get into the theater and then what made you get into the photography? Two questions in one. Photography I got into first because my father was also a photographer. So I started shooting from when I was six or seven years old. Theater wasn't until later and really in high school. And I was fortunate the high school I went to learned a lot of good skills. And then I was able to take that with me later on and start getting professional work. The last couple of years, theater has been my more primary because uh, I've been getting more consistent work. The work I'm doing in photography is more fine art, so it's not as consistent. Whether I have a show somewhere and if I'm selling pieces or not, that's yeah, it's been it's been less consistent than theater. Uh, side questions, which are so I had a painter on, and she is like killing it with her online sales. Yes, uh, but anyway, she sells prints. Do you? I don't know. Do you have a website and do you sell prints? Yes, I do have a website. I guess I should I should qualify. I've worked through several different parts of photography. So I wasn't always doing fine art. There was a time I was doing weddings. There was a time before that I was I was doing some like insurance work and I was doing some school photography, family photography. I did all kinds of stuff and it has led me to here to to fine art. And I realized that this is really where I want to be in photography. When you are in a show, do people pay you to be in a show? Do you pay them to be in a show? Or are you, do you just apply to be in the show and there's no sort of money changing hands to go on display? All of those models happen. 
<laughs> in photography and in fine art, there are times when you are applying and either you're, you're winning a competition or you've been selected somehow through a jury process. And then there are other times where you just want to have a show and maybe go in with somebody and rent some space or you know, something like that. Other times things happen, people will see your work and say, oh, I have a space. I would just love to show you. And, and that's great if you have space you can get into and it doesn't really cost so much. When you are in a show, does that result in people sort of purchasing your prints or does, does not much happen there? Uh, it depends on where you are and what situation is. Hopefully, yes, you are selling prints. But even if you're not, it's good because people can see your work and you never know how that pays off. You never know who walks into an installation and likes what they see and then contacts you later. In any case, having your work shown is always good. That hits on something in my own life is that like I'm an introvert. I can see where that has hurt me, where I haven't made myself known. No matter how good or bad you are or talented or, or very talented, one thing you have to do is sort of be known and get out there. And we're not talking about like you don't need to be Vincent Van Gogh where everybody knows you. Anything where you put yourself out in the world, no matter where it is out in the world, people will see that. And then depending on what their needs are at the moment, they might reach out to you or might not. I'll tell you, I am also an introvert. It has been a struggle sometimes to be able to do things that I know I need to do. But in the end, if you want to succeed, you're going to find a way. Even if you're an introvert, you find a way to make it work. You can't really change yourself that much. You can't be fake. It's hard to fake being extroverted when you're not. <laughs> you know, you know. I, I never had that sense from you that you didn't like to meet people. I always, I think we hit it off pretty well when we first met. So that's good. Speaking of, how did we meet? Ah, so we met Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish when it transferred to Stage 42. It's it's off-Broadway commercial run. Is commercial accurate? Oi, Gavalt. I don't know what that means. <laughs> That, so it ran almost a year there. So you were the board op slash head electrician for a year? Yes. And then I was on it before before the transfer. I was on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, I skipped a question. Sorry, my demographics question. My favorite question. <laughs> Mark, could you describe your demographics to us? Uh, yeah. So I am male, 46, single, American. And that means that my parents are immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> my mom came here from Ireland and my dad's from the Philippines and I'm first generation American. Okay, that's really cool. I did not know your mother was from Ireland. <laughs> yeah, most people would not guess that. <laughs> that's amazing. And another thing people would not guess, I love that you just boldly owned up to it here, your age of 46. If I were to profile you, <laughs> as a, <laughs> I would not peg you as that old. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, education, did you say? I have an associates in arts, music, actually. I was a musician for a long time. I kind of skipped over that, but I was I was making my living as a musician for about 12 years. Why would you skip over that part? <laughs> I kind of forgot. So, all right, so let me, let me talk about this for a minute. So I was doing photography from when I was six. Then my senior year in high school, suddenly got into saxophone and into jazz. That music bug just totally bit. I just started to forget about photography. I put my cameras down. I started buying saxophones and I, I went to school for music, was making my living as a musician. I didn't even think about the photography. And then it just it started to come back later. I, so I hadn't touched a camera in close to 12 years. Theater was always there. I remember my very first theater technician role. I was actually in elementary school. And I was so proud of the fact that I was the kid who was running the curtain to start the show. I loved it. And then in, in high school, you know, started doing more and more and more and actually didn't realize how much I had learned 
until I had gotten out into the real world. Did you still play music? Not really. I, I have a didgeridoo that I like to play every now and then. I haven't played saxophone in a while, and I, I no longer pursue that as a profession. So I was playing music for a long time, and then what happened was I got really sick. I had this crazy ear infection. The antibiotic they put me on, I had a delayed allergic reaction to the antibiotic. So I was pumped full of it by the time I got the allergic reaction. And that knocked me back for a couple of months. I was out of work for almost an entire year. And after that, like I never really got back into music. I had a hard time playing. I had a hard time hearing. I couldn't hear certain ranges of the instruments so well. And then it's like, you can't be doing that. Especially in New York, you can't make an ass of yourself like that. It was hard. It was a very hard reality to come to, to terms with. That is how I got back into photography. I wanted something else creative. And I started doing photography, doing stuff with point-and-shoot cameras and even disposable cameras, making them do more and more things. And eventually I decided to, to get back in. Discovered that after 12 years away, I was way better than I had ever been I just was putting it together in ways I had never thought about before. That just kind of exploded, and that's how I got back into the fine art. What kind of music do you listen to? Jazz has always been my thing, and then after that, I kind of branched off. I, I love funk. We need a funk category at the Grammys. They totally don't have it, and we totally need it. I kind of skipped out on a lot of pop culture things, which can really be a weakness at times socially, but... That's okay. <laughs> okay, so on to your financial personality. Are you bad or good with money? I was bad, and I'm now a lot better, I'm happy to say. I had definitely gotten myself into some trouble with credit cards. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> this is what we're all here for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there were, there were a lot of tough lessons that I had to learn. Once I did, things got a lot better. What it comes down to is just the discipline. You know, you get a credit card in school and you don't really know the ramifications of these things and people give you a lot of bad advice. I've definitely had people say, oh yeah, you can just charge stuff and you don't even need to pay it all right away. And that's definitely a bad thing to do, <laughs> you know, which I didn't understand at the time. But then also sometimes things happen in life, especially as artists, you're between gigs or maybe you're between gigs and then something bad happens that you're not really prepared for, like you get sick or you get hurt and you're trying to maintain the type of lifestyle that you've had, especially when you get around the holidays and like you want to be able to give gifts to your family and to your friends. And yes, you can get into a lot of trouble like that with credit cards if you're not careful. Growing up, did you have good financial examples to learn from? I think I did and I didn't always pay attention to it. Let's put it like that. You know how sometimes you need to hear something more than once before you really connect with it? You know, as I got older, I was able to look back on certain experiences I has had and said, oh, okay, that's, that's what that person was talking about. And I'm only understanding it now. So I did have the good role models and I'm glad they were there, even though it took me a while to catch up. So on Instagram, I do this thing called financial platitudes, which is just not good financial advice. Like you need to budget better. If you don't have enough money, cut back on your streaming services, cut cable. My problem with that is like, it is good advice. We do all need to look at what we're spending, but everybody knows it. Your parents or your mentors can tell you, oh yeah, don't spend too much, but you have to learn it on your own. <laughs> there are just situations where it just doesn't help. You just need to have more money. So a lot of people who talk about things like cut back on, on that latte, I already don't drink lattes. Like I really don't drink coffee. I would say I have a nice coffee just a few times a year. I don't drink, I don't smoke. I, I don't do any of those other types of things. 
when I run into people who complain about their money problems, but I see them drinking and smoking and doing all kinds of things to excess, I don't take their money problems so seriously. <laughs> you know, like I've already cut out all of this stuff. So when I know I have a money problem, I know it's a serious money problem. And the only thing that solves a money problem is more income. Like such a simple thing, but also like a harsh reality. You know, it's the same reason that I don't like talking about credit card debt. You have to pay it off. There's no other solution. And the same thing with like the latte. Oh, don't drink the latte. Well, people like Mark are already not drinking the latte. That's not helpful to them. But it is good advice. Don't overspend is what it's saying. We all know that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I go into to stores anymore and just like walk around and, and buy stuff. You know, like I, I don't have that problem walking into Target. I go in and get the thing that I want. And that's pretty much it. So did you know this? There's a thing, there's like a joke or something where if you go into Target wanting to spend $5 and you spend 105 it's called the Target effect or something. I didn't even know about it. And somebody told me about it a couple years ago. And I've just never suffered from this Target effect problem. Me and my wife, we both hate shopping. So like, I, I didn't even know it was a thing, but apparently it's enough that there's the Target effect. Yeah, I've heard it as a Target effect a lot, but I know it's not just Target. It's plenty of other places. There could be a store that, that caters to whatever you're into, and maybe that's where it'll happen for you. Stress spending is a real thing. If you're not feeling good going out to buy something that you like, that's a very real thing. Even if you know you don't have the money, it feels good for a moment, and then you have to deal with it later. We do have to treat ourselves every now and then. That's a good point because Tony Johnson, who also talked to us about credit cards, he was saying that too of retail therapy is a thing. And this goes back to that point that you and I both made of you have to make more money. Retail therapy can happen if you have money and it's not a problem. If you don't have a lot of money, that's where it can be a problem. People that have more money, it's not because they're better with money. It's because they have more. So they can get away with going and buying a nice brand of ice cream, a new pair of shoes. They can get away with it. It doesn't affect their budget so much. If you're on the lower income end, then you really can't do that. Ethan, it's actually much worse than that. When you don't have a lot of money, things are much more expensive. You can't buy nice stuff. So the stuff that you get is not as good quality. It doesn't last as long. You have to replace it more often. The food that you're buying is not as good. So you're not doing so well health-wise. You know, it's a big, big, big problem. It's definitely not a case of where somebody doesn't have money. It, it means that they're stupid or not capable, not disciplined. I know some really well-disciplined people who don't have money. It's just that things maybe haven't gone their way, the situation that they're in. There's all kinds of stuff. A long time ago, I stopped judging people by how much money they have. The people that you walk by on the sidewalk, you don't know it, but you're probably sizing up every single person that you walk by, inferring whatever information you can from it. There's a lot of good people that just don't have a lot of cash. It doesn't feel good for them. This is touching on a whole point of why we talk about this on the podcast or why we have this podcast. Artists are not foolish with their money. Just because a lot of artists don't make a lot of money does not mean they are bad with money at all. No. And, and actually, a big point that I want to make most artists I know are super disciplined. You would not be an artist if you didn't have that discipline because it's not easy. Being an artist is really hard. People are telling you, you shouldn't do what you do. You should go do something else. But you know this is what you want to do. No matter what, you're going to try and make it work. No matter how hard it gets, there's this stereotype that artists they have a disconnect with things like money 
maybe that's true to a degree, but I don't think it has to be. If people just shift their awareness, they can take that discipline that they use in their art and they can apply it to other things like credit cards. Oh man, I think that's so good. And this might not relate, but Bridgerton, the Netflix series, just to use some of those young actors as examples, and also some of the people on the design and production team, they are now a part of one of the biggest hits in content history. Some of those actors are now going to get work for the rest of their lives. They will not be faced with as many money problems as all the other artists in the world. <laughs> and their lives, their artistic lives will be easier because they will get more jobs easier. But that is like the 0.01% of artists that get connected to something like that. The rest of them aren't going to be getting those jobs with big paychecks. They're going to have to manage it if they want to sustain a career for a long time. Right. I think as uh, I think as artists, we learn that when you have the job, you know, there's always a time after that when you don't have it. So you got to be ready. There's a lot of things that happen throughout the year. But once you hit January, you know, like January through March for for most artists is pretty dead. You know, and it's, that's not the same case if you have a nine to five working at an office, you're still going to go to work January, February, March. But for art, it's like people might not be spending in those areas. So you have to be ready to have that part as an off season. So we've done episode 33 with Joe Longthorne about how to pay off credit cards. Then we did episode 36 with Tony Johnson talking more in depth about the complications of having credit card debt, how to pay it off, and how to get disciplined in order to pay it off because there is no other way. So this is now our sort of third installment about credit cards. The topic that I hate to discuss, but it's really a big pitfall for a lot of artists and a lot of people, not just artists. It's just such a big problem that keeps coming up again and again. Mark, you are here and you're going <laughs> to, we're going we're gonna to discuss this even more. But what I like about what you sort of said to me before we started is that you're looking through this in a very positive light. Ethan, you've discussed sort of the negative things of, oh yeah, you have a bunch of debt and you have to pay it off. We're now going to talk in a positive way and focus on how can we use credit cards to our advantage. I, is that fair to say, sort of? Yeah, that is fair to say. I mean, I, I do have some some warnings that I want to give and, and some examples maybe, but but I think when it comes down to it, when people realize how much more control they have than they thought they did, they can feel a little better and see a light at the end of the tunnel. And that is tremendous help. The effects of debt, especially credit card debt, like you just, you might not sleep well for months. It could go even years because you've got this thing hanging over you. If you can start to figure out small strategies and say, okay, I know I'm doing this and it will definitely help me get to the end result faster. I think that's, that's something good. So the first topic I'm going to approach with you is credit score. So do you know like what a good one is versus a bad one is? Yeah. A, a bad one would be in the 600s. A good one is in the 700s and the maximum is 850. So if you're in the high 700s to 800s, you have excellent credit. Yes, I just looked it up and I confirm what you say according to <laughs> Equifax. So do you want to talk about why credit score is important? Yeah, so credit score, it's an indicator that by itself doesn't really mean a lot, but what it's showing is your overall trend, how you manage your debt. And the thing that people want to know, a lender, a landlord, and now it's like it's going into insurance. If you're getting insurance for your car, they're looking at your credit score to see whether or not you're going to be a good driver, whether or not you're going to be a good risk. What they want to see is that you're paying on time. That's probably the single biggest part 
And then after that, that you're not using too much of a credit line. Those are probably the two biggest things. If you can handle that, you'll get more opportunities. It definitely helps if there's something that you want to get, and maybe it's kind of a big purchase for you to do all at once. But if you have good credit, you can get something with installments on a 0% loan. And that's much, much, much better. There's a strobe system that I wanted to get. Strobes in photography are a lot of money. Because of the credit that I have, the good credit score and everything, I was able to get this strobe system, pay it off in six months, 0% interest. What's not to like about that? Otherwise, I would have had to either pay it all at once or put it on a card with a much higher interest rate. I love what you're saying. So with that strobe example, did you like get a special card that was going to be 0% for six months or a year and you knew that? Or did, was it already a card you had access to? In that particular case, I did apply for a line of credit and it wasn't just for that one purchase. Now I have it and I can use it at that store whenever I want. And I have a feeling I'll be buying stuff at that store in the future. So that was good. It was not something that I, I just did frivolously. I'm not the kind of person to go fill out loan applications or apply for credit cards you know, willy-nilly. I definitely did that a little bit when I was starting out. It's not something that I recommend. But if you find something that really fits and will help you to, to progress, then that's the time to do it. Okay, because this is an amazing point because I often hear like get a home equity line of credit or refinance your mortgage because it'll give you cash or ability to do something else with money that you're borrowing at a low interest rate, which is the same as what you're saying is borrow money for six months at 0% interest rate. To apply for that credit line, did you have good credit? Is that why you were able to do that? Yes, I had excellent credit. I still have excellent credit. My current credit score is in the 800s. Probably when we met at Fiddler, it had suddenly jumped up. I had broken the 800 threshold. Before that, I was in the 790s. So then it, it jumped up to the 800s. And actually, I, I couldn't even really tell you why. I assumed that to break 800, you needed to own real estate. And I, I don't own any property. So I was really shocked to see it suddenly climb up. And it's been there ever since. Oh, and another point I want to make, credit score fluctuates constantly. It's a process. If you have a good credit score and then you go to use credit, your credit score is going to drop. And then over time, as you're making payments and you're assuming you're doing everything on time, it's going to go up higher than it was before. It's going to go up and down, but it, it is a trend. As long as you're not making any mistakes, as long as nothing bad has happened, it's not going to crash. It's not going to do something precipitous. But if it does, you're showing to all the, these banks, it's like, okay, there might be a problem and they're probably not going to extend credit to you in the same way, or they might not even do it at all. You know what your credit score is. I do not actually know what mine is. Nicole and I, I mean, she knows because she gets it on a report every month, so she knows. But also, I've done nothing to either grow or shrink it. Like, I'm not mindful of it. I just know it's an okay number that I haven't seemed to have problems renting an apartment or anything, but I don't obsess about it or look at it. Like, it's probably been a couple years since I even looked at what mine is. You know, that's a good point. I mean, I, I don't obsess over it, even though I, I know what it is. I, I think I know what it is because I get a notification every month. Uh, there's a website that I use called Credit Karma that gives you access to two of your credit scores. There's, there's several different credit reporting agencies. Um, credit Karma uses TransUnion and it's, it's either Equifax or, um, but they use two of the big three. And that's fine. You know, it's like, I don't... Experian? Experian. I don't remember if it's Experian or not. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. It, it's, you need to know uh, your general trend. They're not going to be very far apart. 
Uh, there's actually more credit reporting bureaus than those three, and they can get very specialized into different segments, like for mortgage loans, for like commercial stuff. Uh, the ones that we're talking about are, are really on the consumer end for credit cards. And it's good to have. It's like having a good credit score with one of these credit reporting bureaus is going to help you if you're going to buy a house. It's not going to be a detriment. It's not going to be like, oh, you have the wrong credit score. No, they make all these different models and they're going to be able to figure you out. And having good credit with TransUnion or Equifax or Experian, it's not going to matter if you're trying to buy a house. They're still going to be able to look at it and be like, okay, this person's a good risk. Okay, 800. So you're at the top of the game when it comes to credit scores. <laughs> <laughs> Near, I, I think my high score right now is 815 and my low score is like an 809. Wow. But I do know some people that are in the 840s. That's very impressive. But another another point is that even though I have a high credit score, the banks do know roughly what income bracket you're in. I mean, they can tell just by purchases and the lines of credit that you've got. They have all the statistics on this stuff. It's not a mystery. They've had it for years. They've been working on these, these tables for, for ages, since the start of banking, probably. So even though I have really good credit, I couldn't go into a Rolls Royce dealership and walk out with a car. They know that that's not going to work. I could go and get like a, a lower level car. I can go in one day and, and walk out the same day, maybe with a car, just not a Rolls Royce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my last two cars, 0% interest on both of them, brand new cars. So that is the power of having a good credit score. And it's a process. It's not something that you can fake, but even if you have bad credit, you can start turning it around faster than you think. Since you said turn it around really quick. Could we talk about how we could build it up? Do you know how to build good credit since you have such good credit? The single biggest thing, make your payments on time. That counts more than anything else. And I also fight, if I made a mistake and I missed a payment, I fight really hard to get that corrected. You call the credit card company up and say, hey, I made a mistake, can you help me out? You know, I mean, it has to be something that you can't do it too often because again, it's your overall trend. If you call them once and say, hey, I made this mistake. Can I make this payment right now? Can you make sure it doesn't get reported? So it doesn't count against my, my credit score, my credit report. They're going to help you out. They do it all the time. But if you do it again and again and again, they're not going to help you out anymore. Really, they want to know you're paying your bills on time and that's on you. That's your biggest thing. Even when you're struggling, like there are times when I was struggling with credit cards, the ability to pay on time that's where it all starts. And then there's other little things you can do after that, but that's the single biggest thing. Does, does it matter? Are you just saying pay the minimum on time or pay the whole thing on time or both? In a perfect world, you'll charge on a credit card. At the end of the month, you pay the entire thing off. Ideally, you don't want to be carrying a balance. If you're carrying a balance, the thing you want to do is pay as early as possible. So you have your payment due date, and as long as you pay by that date, you're playing by all the rules and you're going to be listed as paying on time and therefore you are a good risk. However, if you're working on a balance and you say things have gotten out of control, say you've been in a tough spot, now you're carrying a much higher balance than you really want to. And it's not something that you can pay off right away. Then what you want to do is pay as soon as possible. Don't wait for the payment due date because, and this is something that I didn't know about in the beginning, there is a term average daily balance. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is the average of the balance of your credit card every single day. What they do with that is that's how they figure out your interest payment. Ah, okay. Yes. 
So let's do this is let's do a, a very, very rough example. This is not how it's done in real life, but I just want to make the a clear point. Let's say you owe a thousand dollars on your credit card. Your minimum payment is ten dollars. Now let's say that you're not able to pay the whole thing off. Things are really tight. You can't pay more than the $10. You're only going to make the minimum payment, which is the thing that you don't want to do. But that's this is like the last, if you have to, this is what you do. You're going to make your $10 payment. You don't want to make it on that last day, on the, the day that the payment is due. Because let's say you have 30 days. That's your cycle. If you pay it on the last day, that means for 29 days, you have a $1,000 balance. And on the 30th day, you have a $990 balance. And now they average that. However, if you reverse it, if you make your payment right in the beginning, instead of having 29 days of 1,000, you're going to have 29 days of 990. So that average is lower. So your interest rate is going to be lower, or your rate is going to be the same, but the amount of interest that they charge is going to be lower because your average daily balance is lower. That is really important thing. Yeah. On a separate episode, I had said, if you want to pay $10 extra, say your minimum in this example is $10, and you have 10 more dollars that you could pay $20 instead of 10 psychologically, some people might be like, well, I'm just going to pay the minimum. And I say, no, pay the $20 because that's 10 less dollars of interest accruing. To add on to that, what you're now saying is not only should you pay that $20, you should pay that $20 as soon as you know that it is free to pay off the credit card, you should put it there because not only will it eliminate that $10 of interest accruing, it will eliminate that interest a month earlier, potentially, or a few days earlier. And that will actually lower how much you have to pay. So this is amazing, Mark. I'm so glad you said this. This is something when I finally figured this out, I was so upset with how much interest I had paid in the past. We're talking about artists. And a lot of times we're, we're in a place where we're just trying to make ends meet by paying it just on the due date. And especially minimum payments, that's the worst. You're just paying so much more in interest. It's like slavery. They're keeping you in the spot that you, it's so hard to get out of debt. Even if you only have a little bit of money that you can put in, the earliest you can do it, exactly like you said, when you know that money is available and you can apply it towards that balance, do it. It's gonna have a better payoff down the road. That's one of the things where people get stuck psychologically. They don't know that they can do this and they would feel so much better knowing that that money is now going further because you're preventing that interest from accruing. Because this is amazing, because I've heard this example when you're paying off a mortgage. If you pay off one extra payment a year, you're going to cut something crazy like five or seven years off of a 30-year mortgage. And it's that same principle of paying it early. It's not like you pay that extra payment in the final two years. It's like, no, just once a year, once every single year, you pay an extra payment off, and that's knocking down your principal. It's sort of the same example. Now, let me, let me throw this onto it, because uh, we're talking about minimum payments. I know that there were times where things were so tight, I was only doing minimums. In order to keep myself from getting into trouble, I was automating payments. So I was automating minimum payments. And that's a very easy option. You go on to their website or through their app and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to schedule this payment every month on this day. And you can check off all these options, whether you're going to pay the whole balance or part of the balance or the minimum. And it is so easy to say, let me just do the minimum because I'm so strapped. Like, I don't want to do more than that. The problem is the way it's always structured. Let's say you have a $50 minimum payment. I guarantee you the interest you're paying on that cycle is going to be more than $25. So you're effectively paying less than $25 on your balance. And so the course of a year, you're thinking, okay, I made a $50 payment every month. That's $600 that you paid, but you didn't really because you got all this interest on top of it. 
instead of a minimum, go over the minimum, even by a dollar, make it a fixed amount. And that way your balance always gets lower. More of your payment gets applied towards that balance. You're going to be paying less interest over time. Your balance will shrink faster and faster, even though you're only paying $51 as opposed to a minimum payment, because they're always going to recalculate your minimum. So you'll see like, okay, this month, my, my minimum payment was $50. And next month it was $49.90. And the month after that, it was $48.75 or whatever. And you're thinking, oh, good, good, good. But no, your balance isn't really going down that much. They're keeping you on a leash by not doing minimum payments, no matter what. Like I said, even a dollar, it counts. If you can do more than that, do it. Also, what I love about you saying this is, yes, every little bit helps. That's good. Don't get overwhelmed. But two, we've had a couple people on the podcast say, switch banks to, for example, Ally Invest. It gives close to 2% interest versus 0.1% in a traditional savings account. So yeah, that's a great money hack. But also it's like, well, you have to open up a new account, transfer everything over there. That's a lot of work. If you have revolving credit card debt, what you're saying of pay early, it would depend on your numbers. But Paying early, like not really changing anything, but just paying the minimum early and or paying the minimum plus 10 early is probably as significant as if you opened up a new online bank with better interest for your savings. This is something you can just do that's a minimal change, bumping it up 30 days or 29 days, but it will have, I imagine, just as big of an impact or bigger, depending on how what the interest rate is, than getting the right bank account. Yes. And on top of it, since you don't have to move, you're generating good credit history immediately. You know, if you start looking at your your credit report, you will see, okay, maybe you've missed a bunch. Maybe you had a really hard time and you were late on a whole bunch of payments. All of a sudden you have one that was on time. And then you do it again the next month. Now you have two in a row that's on time. Yeah, that might not seem that much when you're looking at the bad history you had before that. But if you're able to maintain that, and you're still only making minimum payments or minimum plus a little more, but all of a sudden your credit history is getting a lot better. So one thing is it's really easy. If you're already paying the minimum, all you have to do is just pay it earlier and that's going to help. The other thing is if you're not paying minimum, if you're doing what you said and in the perfect world, you're paying off the balance every single month. If you can pay off that balance earlier, in theory, you'll have a higher credit score, right? Um, because your average daily balance would be lower. Right. But if you're paying it off, so if you're zeroing it out every cycle, it doesn't matter. Uh, okay. Okay. So uh, I think one of the things that, that you can get tripped up on is if you are paying it all off every month, then yeah, you do it on the due date because why give them the money before they, they need to have it? It's better sitting in your account. So you have access to it. Don't give them the money before that, you know, <laughs> but if things have flipped, if, if all of a sudden you're in a situation where like, okay, things happened and I have to carry this balance, then yeah, you pay it as soon as you can, even if you're only paying a portion of it. I'm going to move on to balance transfers and cash advances. How can those help us or hurt us? They generally no longer help. Okay. There, there used to be a time when a balance transfer was a thing and you were able to do it and to great effect, but they changed how they structure it a long time ago, more than 10 years ago. It used to be if you did a balance transfer, there was a charge, like a balance transfer fee, and it was a percentage of the balance you're gonna transfer up to a maximum of $5. And then later it became a maximum of $10. But now they flipped it. 
Now your balance transfer fee is a minimum of $10 and a maximum of whatever the percentage is that you're trying to transfer. So it costs a lot more. And then what they're going to do, depending on what kind of credit score you have, hopefully if you're going to do a balance transfer, it's to a card that's going to give you a 0% rate for a fixed length of time. Just know they've run the stats on all of this. That term that they're going to give you is not comfortable. It's not something where it would be easy for you to pay that off if you were struggling paying it off. So the odds are very good that you will not finish paying that amount off before your promotion rate of 0% will expire. And then what's worse is that it will shift over to whatever the regular rate is going to be. And it's applied from day one of your balance transfer. It's not applied at the end when you, maybe you've paid off most of it. It's applied as if you didn't pay it. That's how most of those things are structured. In very few cases, would I say a balance transfer is worth it? You have to really run the numbers be like, all right, am I able to pay this amount off within six months or whatever it is? Sometimes it's only three months, sometimes six months, sometimes a year. And then you have to take into account the transfer fee that they're going to charge you. You have to be able to pay that balance off by the end. A lot of times it's, it's kind of tough. It's not really worth it. There have been some times I've come close to doing it. I've not actually done it yet. I've actually found it better for me to be diligent and pay it off over time because the potential of you messing it up can be high. You know, you either have the money to pay it off or you don't. By trying to transfer it somewhere else, if something goes wrong, you could really, you know, you can really shoot yourself in the foot. Okay, Mark, you are blowing my mind here. This is one of those things that is just common knowledge. If you have a lot of credit cards, transfer them all to a 0% card. That'll buy you three months, six months, a year. Not really. <laughs> yeah, and you you were telling me that is not the case because the fee that you have to pay to transfer is so much, and then the debt that you have at that zero percent for six months is still accruing interest once you do have to start paying. Did I interpret that right? Yeah, they treat it as if you were accruing the interest from day one of the transfer. So you have to pay all the back interest if you don't actually zero it out by the time it expires. Okay, see, because this is something I actually asked this on the first episode with credit card debt. I threw that out as an example of, oh, you know, everybody knows, transfer it to a 0% card. And we both said, yeah, you know, that's an option. No, that is not an option, really. Technically, yes, it is an option, but it will cost you to do that. It will cost you to move the money. And then if and when you don't pay it off, unless you transfer it again, which by the way, if you transfer it again, you're going to be paying the fees again. You're going to be paying that interest anyway, just delayed. Yes. And now what I do want to say is all these cards are different. How these things are structured are different. What I'm telling you is what I've seen in general, but you might find some where it works. You might find some where, where the way they have that loan structured is a little different and it will work in your situation. You really have to read the fine print. All the stuff that you don't want to look at, you have to look at. Once you start getting used to reading those things, you'll spot real fast whether it's something worth doing or not. And in most cases, it's not worth doing. Same thing with cash advances. Cash advances don't have the same interest rate as a purchase. It's treated differently. The interest rate is much, much, much higher. You do a cash advance, you really want to pay that off right away. Say you have a credit card, your purchase rate, you know, like you go to a store and buy stuff, it's 15%. For a cash advance, it could be 24.95. If you don't know that, you could really get yourself in a lot of trouble. So a cash advance on a credit card doesn't make any sense to me. To me, it's like if I need cash, I'll go to an ATM and use my debit card and pull cash out. If I don't have the cash, I've never used a cash advance on a credit card. I've never gotten to that point. I know that it happens. People have told me that it's happened to them. It's something that I would avoid at all costs. 
Questions from Silly Aras. How would one go about getting a cash advance on a credit card? Like, I've never done it, and maybe we shouldn't teach people how to do it, but I'm just curious, like, how do you do that? Okay, so all you have to do is stick it in an ATM machine, put in your PIN, and you can withdraw money. And there's usually a limit as to how much you can get in any one day. Uh, I am so dead set against cash advance on a card that I've never even set them up. I, I don't, if I have a PIN on it, I don't know what it is. Another thing to talk about, benefits and rewards of credit card. Keep in mind, I consider all rewards programs scams, down with them, down, down, down. But tell us how we can use them in a positive way. Before we go into that, I want to make one other point. And this is about building good credit, having a good credit score. You apply for a credit card, you're approved, they issue you a card, and they tell you how much your credit line is. A lot of people think they have this credit line to do whatever they want with. And in reality, that is not true. Let's say you're approved for a card and it is a $1,000 credit line. You can only charge $300 on that card. This is something that a lot of people don't know about. In order to maintain a good credit score and good credit history, you need to not use all the credit that you have. And I found the sweet spot to be around 30%. If you have a $1,000 credit line, you can only charge $300 at any one time. You can only owe $300 on that card. When you start going over that, that starts to throw red flags in the system that maybe things are a little out of control for you. Maybe you need to have this line of credit in order to make things work. In the future, if you needed something, like if you needed to have a credit line extension or whatever, they might not give it to you. Definitely when you hit 50%, if you have a $1,000 line of credit and you're charging $500 regularly, that's definitely a warning sign that you need this. You start going over that, things might start to happen. All right, I'm going to tell you something that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I was in one of those situations where I had been out of work, I'd gotten hurt, I wasn't able to work, I just didn't have enough money coming in, and it had kind of lasted for a long time. A lot of my daily stuff was just going on this one card. I was paying all my bills on time, I was making minimum payments, and my balance kept going up. And I knew it was a problem, but I didn't have a solution. You know, I was like, I've just got to keep doing it. And I knew I went over that 30% mark. And then I hit 50% and then it got higher. And then all of a sudden one day I went to use my card and the transaction was declined. And I knew I had reached that point and the bank was like, nope, we're cutting this guy off. And sure enough, when I called up my credit line, they had cut it to like a dollar over my current balance. And they were declining all transactions. Even though I had good credit, if you look at my, my credit history, it says 36 months, pays as agreed, never late. But they know just from running all the statistics over the years, I was in serious trouble. And they reached a point where they were not going to enable me anymore. I'm on the phone with them and I'm on my high horse. I'm like, hey, I've been a customer for this many years and I always pay on time. And I do, and, and we both know. I'm in trouble and it doesn't matter. You know, and, and I was I was complaining. I was like, how can you treat me like this? Like I didn't even get a warning. You just did it. This person I was talking to said, look, we're giving you an opportunity to make a payment to reduce this balance. It is not an opportunity that everybody gets. They're giving me an opportunity to fix this because I've been such a good customer and they know I'm in trouble, but like they're not gonna let me go any further. I knew, like I had no way to get out of it. I just had to to give them a serious lump sum enough to make them comfortable again. And that's what I had to do. I had to scrape up as much money as I could. I had to borrow from friends and family, which felt terrible, but that's what ended up happening. Over time, they reinstated my credit line and it actually got further. I I now have a larger credit line than I ever did. And it took time. 
know, but that was like one of the big wake up calls. It's like, you can't just keep charging stuff. Uh, no matter what kind of trouble you're in, you've got to try and find a way to get through the other side or you will get into serious trouble. Huh. Well, that's a terrible, but sort of actually hopeful and positive story. Yeah. Of you working with the credit card company. Right. And I think it was because my credit score is so high, you know, they can see that I've been paying, you know, but they also knew that there was a big problem and they don't know what, they don't know what it is. They don't know what's going on in my life. They just know that my credit card debt is now out of control. And it definitely affects you. Like I just wasn't sleeping well even because I knew, I knew I had to get out of this. It, it, it was a lot of money, but like, I just want to let everybody know that there is a way out. It feels like crushing debt and it is, but there is a way for you to get out. And a lot of it's just applying good discipline. Hopefully you never even get to that point. But that's a good thing to know too, that 30%. I mean, neither one of us are experts. We just speaking from our experiences here, but that 30% is a good number because I applied for a new apartment recently the amount of money that you pay in rent, they want to be 30% or less of your income. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if those are connected, but yeah. Yeah. I've had a number of people tell me that they've had the same experience. You know, if you charge up to 30% and you do that religiously and pay it off, they'll extend you a higher, a higher credit limit, you know, like in a year, sometimes even less, your credit score will go up, your, your credit line will go up. And that's much, much, much more powerful. I know people who have lots of credit cards because they did the thing that, that I was saying you don't want to do, like filling in a credit card application to get a free t-shirt or whatever. I'm not interested in that. They ended up having a collection of credit cards. and It was like having a collection of spoons. I have a big bucket. I'd rather have the big bucket to be able to move money around with. Having lots of spoons doesn't help me out. 30% of, of small credit lines is not very helpful. If you have good credit, you get that bigger credit line, something does happen and you need to be able to use it, it's much more valuable. How many credit cards do you have? I have two that I carry with me and I have maybe four more that I don't use. And they're good to have for different reasons. You know, I would say if you like to travel, it's good to have a card that does not charge a foreign transaction fee. People talk about different rewards and stuff. I, I'm not big on airline miles. I don't fly enough for that to really work for me. I'd rather have like cash back, also, if you can find one that really fits your niche, like for example, American Express has a fantastic like, benefit. They automatically extend the manufacturer's warranty on many, many things. And because I'm a photographer, I buy like a lot of electronics. That's a really nice benefit. If you need to bring something in for warranty service and you're no longer in the warranty period, it's like you do still have a warranty. There's a, there's a process for it. It's, you, you can't just go and just claim to the manufacturer, oh, you have to extend this. It doesn't work like that. You will have charged it on your Amex, and then when you need to bring it in, you'll call Amex and tell them, I'm out of my warranty period. They'll give you the go-ahead to go and get a, an estimate, get it repaired. They'll approve it. You'll pay for the estimate on your credit card, and then the next month, they'll give you a credit for that estimate. You will have gotten it fixed for nothing. That's a pretty good reward if you're buying certain things that are expensive. Fixing camera lenses is expensive. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So that's a nice benefit for me. You know, there's, there's lots of cards that offer different things. I would, I would recommend that you try and do some research and find one that fits your lifestyle. Um, okay, fine. So maybe credit cards are good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. You're already paying cash or you're using a debit card for everything. Shifting those purchases over to a credit card can really improve your position. Because of the good credit that you're going to be generating, you're making good credit history. And then any of the benefits or rewards that come with the card are going to be a bonus. You know, so if you already have that discipline, it's great. Those rewards, 
don't mean a thing if you're carrying a balance. As soon as you're carrying a balance, it goes out the window. You've got to pay that balance off. Okay, I just, I'm going to interject something, which is a throwback to an interview I did with Cookie Jordan. Now, her example was 30 years ago. Maybe it doesn't work like this anymore, but I suspect it does. There have been a number of people on this podcast, and then some of the listeners I know don't have credit cards at all. They do what you just said, which is debit card only. If you're in that situation and you know, oh, I should probably build some credit, or credit might help me rent my next apartment, or purchase property, or purchase a car, the way she did it was she was that no credit card person. When it was time for her to get the card, she applied and they said, well, you have no credit history. So what she did was she sent them $500 and they just held it for six months, but she had a $500 credit limit for six months. But it only took six months, maybe a year for her to build it. And then she had credit. So I guess what I'm saying is what you said, which is just start putting some, start using your credit card. That's one way to build it, certainly. But also if you're worried like, oh, I need to build credit, know that you there are options to build it and it's not going to take you forever. It won't take you forever. Actually, it happens pretty quickly. And smaller is actually better. I had a, a friend who didn't understand that 30% thing and they were trying to build credit really fast and there really isn't a way to do that. It's a process and you can't really make a shortcut for it. So they got a card and they would max it out every month. <laughs> they, they would charge the maximum they could on that card, pay it off in full every month. And then after six months, went to the bank and was like, hey, can I have a bigger line of credit? And they were like, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah there's, there's a way to do it no matter what. And like a secure credit card, if you can't get a credit card, secure credit card is a good way to go. After six months, you'll be able to get a regular credit card that you don't have to give them the money up front. And then from there, it's just going to grow quickly. Um, so Mark, I feel like we've talked long enough. So I'm going to move to the wrap up. But I just want to give you one more chance if there was anything we missed here. One thing I will say is there was a time where I was automating minimum payments and then manually making another payment later because I didn't want to be tied to a big payment in case I couldn't cover it. I didn't want to get into trouble that way. So I, I was automating minimum payments and then making a, a much bigger payment or, or sometimes pay the whole thing off with a second payment that month. How long did you do that and did it work successfully for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still have that process in place now. I mean, I'm at a point where I pay everything off in full, but if something happens and I'm not really sure, it's like, I don't want to get caught. So I'll, I'll have a smaller payment set up automatically and then I'll go in manually and do a second payment. It's, it's treated the same. As long as I make it by a certain date, it doesn't matter if I paid it off on the second day or the last day. Let's see, what else do I have? I, I also love that you said that because that's what I always say with IRAs. Yes. Set up your account. And I know everyone's worried about automated payments withdrawing their accounts. Do a small automated one. My example is always $5 a month. Do the automated one just so that you're doing something. So even if you're busy or tired or whatever, you're doing something. And then yes, manually go in and do the chunk here, chunk there, rather than just saying you're going to do the chunks because then you can forget, at least automate something. So I feel like that's the same process as you said, just toward retirement. Yes, except you're applying it towards debt instead of yeah, an investment. Um, There's one thing I, I really want to hit home. I hear people say all the time, whether it's a credit card that they have or whether they just have a, a, a bunch of cash in their pocket, and you hear people say that like it's burning a hole in their pocket. I don't believe in that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, especially after yeah. having gone through some of the things I've, I've, I've gone through. And the way I think of it is this, every car I've had has a speedometer that goes well over 100 miles an hour. But should I drive that fast all the time? Probably not. <laughs> you know. So just because you have a credit card that has a nice, nice credit limit on it, 
doesn't mean you should go out and just charge stuff. That's not what it's for. And I think people just need to hear that just to realize they really do have the discipline to handle this. You're not somebody who's going to say, oh, hey, I have all this money. I just got to spend it. No, it doesn't work like that. You have things that you want to do, bigger goals you want to achieve. You're not going to take that cash and just throw it away. You're not going to take a credit line and just fill it up with frivolous stuff. Maybe you did because the programming we've had growing up is that, hey, you should do this. That's not the case. Today is a new day. You've heard it from lots of people. You don't need to do that. That way, the credit card is a tool that you can use as opposed to something that will get you into trouble. You know, if something bad happens, then it's a great tool because it could help you get through the rest of the month. And then maybe something good happens after that, or you'll know things are going to be better. You can pay it off, but you don't want to use it frivolously. Why drive 100 miles an hour in rush hour traffic? There's no need. I love that you said that because it's just a very good way to say it. It's a good analogy. My in-laws, their favorite thing to say is moderation is key. I agree with them 100%. Moderation is the key to everything. The key to moderation is discipline, knowing yourself, being true to yourself. We all know what's good for us, and we all know what's bad for us. We need to just analyze the bad things and just make sure we keep them at bay and then try to lean into the good things. The credit card isn't the bad part. There's a bunch of good things that credit cards can do for us. We need to lean into those parts of it and then sort of minimize the negative aspects that could be. Right. And I think as artists, we're actually used to doing that. You know, we're used to taking risks. We know how to mitigate certain risks when we're working on creative projects. You know what will make your project tank, why you should avoid certain things. Really, you can take that same discipline and apply it to a credit card or anything else. Man, Mark, I'm so glad we had this discussion, even though I hate talking about credit cards. <laughs> this was the most positive discussion that we could have about that topic. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> so I'm going to move to some wrap-up questions here. What can you and I do to stress the importance of finance and savings to our fellow artists? I think the big thing is to keep having the conversation, which is what I love about this podcast that you've started. There's a lot of people who say that they can help you out. And then when it comes down to it, they're just not going to share the types of things that we need to have shared. I've certainly made mistakes on jobs or, or maybe quoting somebody something because I didn't know what the real numbers were. And people aren't going to tell you. In this, we're not competing for different jobs. We're just trying to handle our finances a little better. I think it's so powerful to be able to, to talk about it and let people know that they're not alone. Most Americans are in credit card debt. Most don't know how to handle it because we're not allowed to have these conversations. Uh, so I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing to, to let this happen. Final two questions. What separates those that have a full-time career in the arts from those that never get started in it or do it for a while and then transition to something else? I would say a lot of heart, a lot of heart. You could do everything right in these industries, in, in creative industries, and just not get there. You could be struggling the entire time. I know many people who've done that and then eventually decided, you know what, I'm not doing it anymore. Move on somewhere else. I know others who, they were ready to quit, all of a sudden, something connected and enabled them to stay in, and then they just exploded. You really need to have a lot of heart to hang in there. Hard work, of course, hard work, discipline, determination, growing your network, treating people well. I'm stunned when I see people mistreat others because they feel like they have something over them. And you never know when you need to go to that person in the future. That could be a, a deal maker, a deal breaker that you just snubbed. Whole careers are made on that or lost. 
I think it's just having the courage to do what you do, believe that, that that's what you need to do and play well with others. Eventually find your way through or not. You're going to do it anyway. I think that's great. I, f I actually feel like you touched on like seven different things in there that are all correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mark, final question. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, you can always see what I'm working on on the Instagram. That's a, always a good place at Pixmark, P-I-X-M-A-R-C, or on my website, marksantosphotography.com. Mark, thank you so much for sitting down and sharing all this knowledge with us. Oh, thank you so much, Ethan. It was a pleasure to be here. That was our interview with Mark Santos. My takeaways were three ways to build your credit history and credit score. Pay your credit card bill on time, even if just the minimum. Pay extra on your credit card as early as possible, even if it's just a dollar because you'll lower the average daily balance, thus reducing your interest, and only use 30% of your credit limit. Another takeaway was that if you transfer credit card debt to a new card, you will still accrue interest on the debt, and it will be due after the low or no interest period. You will also be charged transfer fees on that debt. If you have debt, prioritize paying it down over moving it around. Find the additional content from this episode over at Patreon. You can become an associate producer of this show for $3 a month. Do that at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And remember, our patrons get a discount on all our merchandising. Visit artisticfinance.com for t-shirts, mugs, and pillows. Why would you need a pillow that says finance? Because while I do all I can on this podcast to beat finance over people's heads, if you're going to do it in person, best to do it gently with a pillow that says finance. Please remember, if you don't want to become a patron or purchase our overpriced merchandise, the next best thing you can do is to tell your wife, tell your kids about the podcast. Telling people has been the number one way that we've gained new listeners. Thank you for listening and a special thank you to the patrons. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steinle. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.